Well, we've been eyewitnesses of a, an incredibly dramatic moment where the angels, a host of angels, presented the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days. And in that meeting and in that exchange, dominion, glory and a kingdom was granted the Son of Man. And perhaps the angels watched, waiting for this private, this intimate moment to be over. And then they broke out into rapturous applause, the celebration. Not only of what has been achieved, but now what has been promised. What has been guaranteed that many sons and daughters would be brought to glory. But you know, this is all in the past, isn't it? This this meeting took place 2,000 years ago. And the next instalment, the next episode of the, the Son of Man that we look in our scriptures changes pace entirely. It's a rather pacey account because it's all about Jesus Christ returning to the earth and establishing God's kingdom. And we see very quickly in the work of the Son of Man that he has a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. And so now the, the theme, the, the real thrust of the Son of Man is establishing God's kingdom upon the earth. It's funny that that Brother Johnny looked at John chapter 5. Can we open our our second talk together in John chapter 5? And it's also funnier that the two verses he looked at uh, are kind of the bookends of the two verses I'm going to look at. And that's sinking for you. So if you look at John chapter 5, and we've, we've already looked at the voice, and you can see how these verses dovetail together, I want us to look at verse 26. And the reason why I want us to go here is that Jesus now discloses the role of the Son of Man. What's his role? So we looked at this voice in verse 25, and then Jesus goes on to say, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, Because he is the son of man. I want us to notice that. He's been granted authority. That's exactly what we've seen in Daniel chapter 7. Isn't it? That these are words confirming that Daniel chapter 7 is being fulfilled in him. He is the voice. He is the resurrection and the life. It is him. He's encouraging us to go back to Daniel chapter 7. And he's already. He is already being given the kingdom. Because it's a reality. We don't think about that, do we? We think that Jesus has got to return and establish God's kingdom. But no, the scriptures are very clear that he's been given dominion, glory and a kingdom. As far as God's concerned, who transcends time, it's a reality. It's a reality. And so here then, the Son of Man has been granted this authority over the kingdom. He is the Ben Adam. He is the representative. He is the victor. He is the glorious one. He is the one who knows the very hearts and intents of man's heart. This is he. And to emphasize that point, it's repeated again in verse 22. For the father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the son. So having established now, remember, this son of man is, 
is, is linked to coming in clouds. Having established now his role, his role is to judge. His role is to judge. When he returns, his role is to judge. He is to judge the household of faith. He is to judge the nation of Israel. He is to judge the nations of the world. This is his role, brothers and sisters, young people. So having established now the purpose of the Son of Man, let's now bring it back to this theme, coming in clouds. And there's three references. I mentioned them yesterday. Three references that we're going to really anchor our thoughts around. So the first one, then, is the one we've already looked at in Daniel chapter 7. One like the Son of Man who came with clouds of heaven. That's a wonderful meeting between the Father and Son. You've got another reference here, Matthew chapter 24. And shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. God willing, we'll look at that tomorrow in our final talk. And then we're going to pick up this one. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so amen. So that's what we're going to look at in our session this morning. Now when you look at those verses, what's the, the overriding message? Jesus is coming! Get ready! And he happens to be coming in clouds. But that's the message. He is coming. And the clouds, what's the significance of clouds? Well, if we were to to think about clouds, the role of clouds, perhaps then these are three examples that would come to mind. You might think of the pillar of cloud, or the thick cloud on Mount Sinai, or the cloud that covered the tabernacle. And when you look at those rolls of cloud there on your screen, you can see strikingly that they come from the book of Exodus. And, and, And the book of Exodus is all about coming out of Egypt to the promised land. So there's this, this big message around gathering or regathering God's people. And I believe that is something that is related to the role of the Son of Man, the work of regathering. And we've already seen as well that the cloud is a symbol of God's glory, God's power, God's presence. So in other words, then, this picture of Christ coming in clouds paints a very dramatic picture of a time of the exodus, a time of regathering, of God's people in the land, of one who is going to orchestrate this regathering. And it's going to be one who comes in God's presence, in God's glory. Indeed, he is the son of God. So there's two bits then that override um, this message in the book of Exodus, the, the work of regathering and the work of God's revelation. So having looked at these three passages then, as I said, we're going to pick up uh, Revelation chapter 1. We want to try and deal with these key meetings. We said yesterday, these key meetings of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend time in Revelation 1. But before we go there, can you have a look at Revelation 14? This is a, a helpful introduction to Revelation 1. Uh, and you might wonder... Why I say that? Well, there's something here. There's a feature in Revelation 14 that, that's helpful to understand, really, the narrative of the Son of Man. So, Revelation then 14 and, and verse 14, you've got these words. John on the Isle of Patmos, in vision, he records these words. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man. So very similar to the language of Daniel 7 that we've got on the screen. You can see the parallels between the two. But there's some additional details here 
having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. So we've got one like the the son of man here and he's in a a white cloud. He's holding this sharp sickle and he stands ominously here, doesn't he? He's ready to harvest. Again, it's a picture of judgment where we we started our talk in Matthew chapter 5. It's consistent with that. He's coming to judge and he's holding the sickle. But, but something else we shouldn't overlook, that little detail there, having on his head a golden crown. And this is rather interesting because the word crown there, I'm sure you know, is the word Stephanus. We've all heard of the crown being the word Stephanus. It's the wreath, isn't it, that was given to the, the victors of the ancient games. But it's not the diadem. The diadem belongs to the one who is going to be king of kings and lord of lords. So in other words, then, when we're looking at Revelation chapter 14, we're seeing a snapshot of what's going on in an unfolding episode of the Son of Man. It is this ongoing spectacle that the Son of Man covers so many different episodes. And here in Revelation chapter 14, we're kind of zooming in into one part of that episode, that drama. And in this part of the drama, Revelation 14, he's not wearing the royal diadem. He's not appeared in Jerusalem. He's not destroyed the nations that gather themselves. He's not enthroned in the royal city. So that's helpful. When we're looking at the Son of Man, it is this overarching theme that runs throughout Scripture. It's a drama. It's a, it's a, it's a, a set of activities that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to do in order to establish God's kingdom upon the earth forever. And that's really important to understand. It's not a a momentary event. It's a drama. So with those thoughts, then, let's go back to to Revelation chapter 1. Having established now that we're watching an episode of an unfolding drama. Before our eyes here, we see these words in 13. Revelation 1 verse 13. And we see a similar picture. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, or lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man. Okay, so the same idea here. Clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was the sun shineth in the strength. So by looking at those two verses, you can see again, it's the role of judgment that's in being impressed upon our minds. It's the John chapter 5. It is the the role of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man coming in clouds. But then there's another feature, there's another detail that's expressed to us here. In verse 18, this little detail is, The one who is this Son of Man, he exclaims, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. So this little episode here is about the risen Lord, the glorified Lord, the one that died but rose again. And that gives us comfort, being the first, being the resurrection and the life. But remember, in our first talk, we talk about the Son of Man who would bring many sons and daughters unto glory. We've got the same idea here in the end of verse 15. He's not alone, is he? It says there, his voice as the sound of many waters. He's there with the saints. He's there with the bride. He's there as a multitudinous Christ, he's, he's there with a, an innumerable army of men and women who are being granted immortality. So this is post the judgment seat. 
This is God's revelation through his son upon the earth. And I wonder when we look at these verses together with the eye of faith, do you spot yourself there? And this is what we've got to try and do, as hard as it is to imagine ourselves. This is the description of those who will inherit immortality. And they're going to work with the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about peace and righteousness upon the earth. And so when we read these verses, don't just look at them, brothers and sisters, young people, as just merely academic details. This is our work. And it should thrill us. Absolutely thrill us. And we hope and pray that we will be there on that day. So with those thoughts in mind, now let's look at verse 7 here. Revelation 1 verse 7. But before we look at Revelation 1 verse 7, look at the end of verse 6. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Isn't that the same picture again of Daniel chapter 7? The one in heaven who received dominion and glory and the kingdom. Can you see this? Can you see how intertwined these visions are? This, this, this unfolding drama that's being described before our eyes here. But all the language is so similar. He receives all glory and all dominion. Dominion. When I say the word dominion, what, what would you think about the word dominion? Well, this is another subject that is all embracing of Scripture because it starts off early on in the book, doesn't it? Shall we have a look at the book of Genesis? And we're going to have a short digression. You'll see in a moment why. So the reason why we're going back here is to think about dominion. He's given all glory. We've understood that in Daniel chapter 7. But, but why dominion? Well, there's a, a very important lesson in all of this. So we're going right there in the beginning, as, as Johnny's already talked about, those opening words in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick up the account in verse 26 and try and spot a word that we've seen there in Revelation. Genesis chapter 1 then and verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion okay that's the end of revelation 1 verse 6 over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth verse 27 so god created man in his own image and in his image of god created he him male and female created he them and god blessed them and god said unto them be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So here then, this dominion that is granted the Lord Jesus Christ in Daniel chapter 7 and is highlighted in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6 is something that Adam should have exercised as the first man. That was his responsibility, to subdue all things, to have dominion over everything. But he failed, as we know he did. But the son of man, the Ben Adam, would come and triumph, and he would be the victor. Now have a look at Psalm 8. Think about what you've just read in Genesis chapter 1, and you are going to see a flood of words that you've seen earlier. 
And Psalm 8 here is connecting Genesis chapter 1 and the words that we've just read in Revelation chapter 1. And why Psalm 8 is such a, a lovely chapter, it's the very platform that the apostle quotes from and uses as the son of man argument in Hebrews and chapter 2, which we've looked at. So Psalm 8 then. And this psalm was written by David, and perhaps it was written soon after vanquishing Goliath. And look at the words. They're rather poignant, aren't they? Psalm 8, and we'll read these carefully, and you can see all the connections here. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. And then it goes on. Thou madest him to have dominion. Okay, that's Genesis 1 verse 26 and Genesis 1 verse 28. Over the works of thy hands, which thou hast put all things under his feet. So this was the responsibility. This was the duty of Adam. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the pass of the sea. Dominion over all things. The earth was Adam's kingdom. O Lord, O Yahweh our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. So there was Adam. He was to have dominion. So with those thoughts in mind, when we look at those words, just think about those words, that Jesus Christ receives the dominion. It accompanies this crown with honour, isn't it? And we can understand this crown of honour. You, you can see it in, in Psalm 8 as well. But it's more than this crown of honour. He becomes then truly the second Adam. And by having all dominion, what does he do? He reverses the curse of Eden. He establishes a paradise to the ends of the earth. He brings about unity and fellowship with God. Can you see this? It's addressing all the evils that begin in those opening chapters of Genesis. And now we've got the Son of Man sat there as king over the earth. Dominion and all things are subject to him. And once again, we see ourselves in all of this, don't we? Because this will be the responsibility of those who are granted immortality. We, we are told in Revelation chapter 1 that we will be kings and priests and we will reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're marvellous things. Absolutely wonderful. So with that introduction then, when we think about behold he cometh in clouds in Revelation 1 verse 7, what, what, what do you think about those words with, with uh, all the things that we've said so far? Well, if we, we think about our first address, we, we've already said that Jesus Christ went up with a cloud of angels. And so then, if he cometh in clouds, perhaps we would conclude that he comes with angels. That would be a reasonable conclusion, wouldn't it? And perhaps some of us think that, and, and there's nothing wrong in thinking that. But I don't think it is. And I believe that this is something really important to think about, because if we can really understand who these clouds are, and who Jesus appears with upon the earth. And we can pinpoint who that honour belongs to. 
then it can be tremendously encouraging. And now what I want to do, just very quickly now, I want to show you that the work of the kingdom is not granted the angels, it's granted the saints. And so Jesus Christ coming in clouds, it cannot be angels that reveal themselves upon the world and change the world. Let's have a look at Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go back there. Hebrews chapter 2. So we've already looked at that discourse, haven't we, that that picks up in verse 6 and goes down concerning the Son of Man and many sons unto glory. And what I want to do now, I want to pick out verse 5. I I purposely admitted it in our first talk for this reason. And verse 5 says these words, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. And it could not be any clearer, brothers and sisters, The work of establishing God's kingdom upon this earth is the work of the saints. It's the work of us, those who will be granted immortality. So who then, the writer of the apostle, the writer of the Hebrew says, who then will be subjection, the world to come, in verse 5? Well, we've already looked at it, verse 10. Many sons and daughters unto glory. Can we see that? The work of the kingdom of God is not granted the work to the work of the angels. It's granted to the sons and daughters that are transformed to glory. That's really important, isn't it? So when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, which we've looked at earlier. Hebrews chapter 12, which, which really concludes chapter 11. Let's just read Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. What is Paul saying here, or the great apostle? What he's simply saying is, look back to that great catalogue, are faithful men and women who are now sleeping in the dust of the ground in Hebrews chapter 11. And they are the cloud of witnesses. They will be the ones where authority will be granted, where the world will be subject to the faithful men and women of old. And so then the cloud represents The faithful in God's coming kingdom. And and brothers and sisters, that's so encouraging. It's so clear that it involves us. And so we ask ourselves, are we prepared for that work? What are we doing with our lives to prepare ourselves for that great work to come? Because much work is to be done. But there's also a, a, a spiritual reason why the saints are described as clouds and, and the picture is a stunning one. We've got the the son of righteousness there with healing in his beams in Malachi chapter 4. And I'm sure we're all familiar with this language here, which speaks of the son, S-O-N, of righteousness. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is referred to as the light of the world in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9. So it's very clear that the Lord Jesus Christ depicts the son. And, And the nations of the earth are representative By the waters. Isaiah 57, for example. And we know the phenomena when the sun rises upon the waters and it causes evaporation. And the 
the, the, the finite, minute particles of water ascend into heaven and they form clouds. And this amazing process tells us that we will be gathered and the faithful will be formed into clouds. Have you ever thought about that? That, that our role will be clouds in the coming kingdom, that we will soar in the political heavens. And what are we going to do? What are we going to pour upon the earth? Well, we might think judgment, given the words of Matthew chapter 5. Let's have a look at Psalm 72, what we will be doing in God's coming kingdom. Psalm 72, and it's interesting, isn't it, how it starts off this psalm. Psalm 72 and, and, and verse 1. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. So there's a real emphasis that this is the role of the king's son. And then you look in verse 2. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and the poor with judgment. So this theme of judgment is coming through loud and clear. It's, it's spelled out again in verse 4. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. And then the all-important verse, verse 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth. In his day shall the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. And if we forget that this is part of the theme of the, the Son of Man coming in clouds, verse 8, he shall have dominion, says the psalmist, also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the world. So rain then is a, a figure of the word of God. That's a, a well-known symbol. And, and the watering of the earth. This is the all-important point. The, the watering of the earth in God's coming kingdom will not be the work of the angels. It will be the work of the saints. And let's just think about this. Our words. Have you ever thought about this? Our words in God's coming kingdom. You and I granted immortality when we speak. It will come down like rain upon the mown grass. And we know how sweet that smell is. Our showers that water the earth. So however low you may be feeling today, this is the promise. God is going to convert you and elevate you into a, a magnificent, a, a life-giving cloud. And think about the clouds and how they saw the majesty of clouds in the presence of the sun. And these clouds are going to feel the warmth of the sun of righteousness. And the speed and the swiftness, we will feel the, the wind in our face. And our work here is the work of changing this world. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The, the water of God's truth and we will pour. We will pour. Have you ever thought about our work in God's coming kingdom? It's going to be very scriptural based. It's going to be pouring God's truth upon this parched world. And it's lovely, isn't it? Because when we think about that phrase, Christ coming in clouds, it's telling us that those clouds are always with Christ. Have you ever thought about it? They're always with Christ. They're inextricably linked with Christ. Wherever Christ goes, the cloud goes with him. 
in God's coming kingdom. We're always going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're always going to be working with him. We're always going to be in conversation with him. It's going to be a reality. We we will never be away from the Lord. Christ comes in clouds and he's going to pour his word upon the earth. Is there more a wonderful, uplifting and exhilarating duty for any of us brothers and sisters and young people, if we try and imagine the future. I doubt not. This is a wonderful, wonderful work. So we've considered then the, the meaning of the phrase, behold, he cometh in clouds. But uh, the, the other phrase I want to think about now is the second phrase, as we try and unpick this verse here in Revelation 1, verse 7. So he cometh in clouds. And then the writer says, every eye shall see him. What does that mean? Well, perhaps it means that when the Lord Jesus Christ leaves the right hand of the Father and he returns to the earth, that he will turn in a way that every eye will see him. Immediately. Is that what we think? Do we think that Jesus is going to return and as soon as he leaves the Father's presence, that the world will see him? It will be an earth-stopping moment, quite literally. I think we need to think about the sequence here. There's a a very important sequence. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 4. (coughs) 1 Peter chapter 4 then. Just one verse, verse 17. For the time is come, says Peter, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? So before Jesus can come with a cloud of witnesses, those witnesses needed to be granted immortality. And before these witnesses can be granted immortality... They have to stand before the judge of the earth. So in other words, then these clouds, in order for them to be formed, Jesus has got to return. He's got to raise the dead and the living are gathered together. The judgment seat has to take place and immortality needs to be granted to the faithful. Can can you see that? In order for a cloud of witnesses to be revealed upon the earth, there's a whole series of things that need to have taken place in order for that to happen. So judgment begins in the house of God. Now, when we think about the glory of God, every eye shall see him. That's talking about the world, isn't it? Every eye shall see him. Every one in the world will know that Jesus Christ has returned. And if you think about it, there's a a well-known Prophecy, isn't there? There's a vision of Ezekiel. And and we're not going to go into detail, but just summarise it really for our purposes. Ezekiel's a prophet, and the nation of Israel have been wicked. And in vision, Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple, the city, it goes east, it travels up the Mount of Olives, and then ascends to heaven. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven. 
And then when you come to the end of the book, and it's picked up in in chapter 43, when the the new temple has been built in Jerusalem that becomes a house of prayer for all nations, says Isaiah, the glory of God comes down from the mount into the city and fills the house of God. So just think about that. That's a vision of the glory of God. And we know in the book of Hebrews that the Lord Jesus Christ was the glory of God. He was the express image and the glory of the Father. So for that glory picture to be reversed, the glory has to first appear where? The Mount of Olives. This is where the world will see him. Now, when we think about the Mount of Olives... Surely our minds go to that well-known prophecy. Shall we have a look at it now? Zechariah chapter 14, a chapter which I'm sure we all know well. But just linking these verses now with this picture that we're trying to paint before you. And we're trying to answer the question, when will the world see the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's interesting here in, in Zechariah chapter 14 that you've got... A picture of the Lord Jesus Christ placing his feet upon the Mount of Olives. This Jesus shall return in like manner, said the angels to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. So Zechariah 14 and verse 3, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So this is the, the battle of Armageddon. And at the end of this battle, he will wear the diadem, not the Stephanus. And verse 4, and his feet, the Lord's feet, in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem in the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a great valley. And we've got all the details now of how it was split. But what I want to draw your attention to is the end of verse 5, and it says there, on that day, when the Mount of Olives splits, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Can you see that? The saints, the cloud. Jesus returns in the form of a cloud. And when that mountain splits, it's not Jesus alone that stands upon the Mount of Olives. It is this picture of the Son of Man with many sons and daughters that have been brought to glory. And the Mount of Olives splits. And that word saints there is the same idea that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Those saints that also receive dominion, glory, and the kingdom. Can we see that? I know we're covering a lot of ground. But this is really important. Jesus Christ in clouds, and there they are. This cloud now (laughs) comes down and descends and stands upon the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives splits in two. And that's very consistent, isn't it, with Ezekiel's prophecy there, where the glory from the Mount rushes down into Jerusalem and fills the house of God. Well, if we just take a breather for a moment, what we're saying here, in a way, that there are two distinct comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is coming in clouds. But what we've seen this morning, that there are two distinct comings. That the first coming is in secret, when the voice goes forward, as Brother Johnny has been talking about. When the judgment seat takes place, when the faithful are granted immortality, and then there's the powerful, glorious revelation 
upon the Mount of Olives, where the Lord Jesus Christ is with those sons and daughters that have been brought to glory, and the world shall see. And, and to quote Revelation, every eye shall see him when he stands upon the Mount of Olives. So these are these two distinct comings. The secret return, where the Lord Jesus Christ gathers the saints, and then the faithful, granted immortality, they become the clouds of the future. But what then about the other little bit in the, in the verse there in Revelation? And they also which pierced him. This is all part of the drama of the Son of Man coming in clouds. Well, this is speaking about Jesus' own people, the Jewish nation. Well, of course, it was the Romans, wasn't it, who put the nails into Jesus' hand and feet. But it was the Jews who protested to Pilate that they had no king but Caesar. And when Pilate asked them what they should do with the man, they said, crucify him, crucify him. So effectively then, it was the Jewish nation that nailed the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross. So here then, in Revelation 1 verse 7, those who pierced him, it's telling us, when will it be? that the Jewish people in the land will see the Lord Jesus Christ coming in clouds. And that's the question that's being asked. We all know that unspeakable times are coming once again to the nation of Israel. Unspeakable times. And this is depicted in Ezekiel 38 and 39. But I don't want to, to, to go there. What, what I want to do, I want to just, uh, just think a little bit about these two chapters, Ezekiel 38, 39, where we read of Gog and the armies of Gog coming upon the nation of Israel. Well, what's interesting, first of all, when you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, you come across the phrase, the Son of Man. Isn't that lovely? The Son of Man coming in clouds, and there it is in the, those two chapters of Ezekiel 38 and 39. But, but it's more than that, because the Son of Man spends more time in the book of Ezekiel than anywhere else in Scripture. In fact, it's over 90 times, I'm sure you know, that that phrase, the Son of Man, is found in the book of Ezekiel. And just look on the screen how the Son of Man is against Gog. We don't think about that. We think about Christ challenging the armies of Gog. But really, when you look at it in Ezekiel 38, verse 2, verse 14, and chapter 39, and verse 1, It's the son of man in clouds. That's the symbology that we've seen here. That's the way we should interpret it. It's Christ in clouds. It's not Christ alone. He's with the saints. He's with the saints. And it will be Jesus Christ and the saints that save the nation of Israel from the hand of Gog. And when... Christ stands upon the Mount of Olives, and we see there by looking at Zechariah and the book of Ezekiel, it will utterly overwhelm Gog and his allies and his mighty army, an unprecedented army there in Israel. And the culmination of all these things, at the end of the unfolding drama, God says these words in Ezekiel 38, Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations, And they shall know that I am the Lord. And it is then, it is then that the world will know about God, about Yahweh. It's the covenant name that is written there and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be then when Jesus Christ stands upon the Mount of Olives, then will be the time when all eyes of the world 
will be fixed upon the sun. And this world will never be the same again. But we're just thinking about that moment, those that pierced him. Let's uh, have a look at Zechariah chapter 12. We, we see here that Jesus is going to reveal himself in Jerusalem to those that pierced him. And it's the most moving reconciliation in history. The one who stands before them is the one who has just saved them. And the reaction is overwhelming. It is inconceivable that this is the one that they crucified 2,000 years ago. And there we read in verse 2 of chapter 12, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. Go down to verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Just turn over to chapter 13 now, and verse 6, on this question. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. It says there, doesn't it, in in chapter 12 and verse 10, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. And the idea of that word looked is to look intently. They will scrutinize, they will examine, they will reflect, and they will weep. But it's also interesting that the same Hebrew word is used of how the children of Israel were commanded to come out of their tents and to behold the brazen serpent. And if they'd been bitten by a snake, if they looked upon the pole in faith, they would be saved. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it would suggest that when they look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it's in faith. We'll look at this in our discussion a little later this afternoon, God willing. And they are saved. The whole scene, isn't it, is, is, is reminiscent of Joseph. Can we just finish there? Genesis chapter 45. Unknown to them, the man before them, who has just saved them from certain death, is none other than their brother, the one they thought was long dead. Genesis 45 and verse 1. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him, and he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept. And he wept. That was the reaction of Joseph. Will that be the reaction of the Lord Jesus Christ? And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And of course they were troubled. They thought he was dead. Have a look in your margin. It should say they were terrified. And of course they were. He was like a ghost to them. They thought he was dead. And now he stands before them. And the guilt that they felt before now becomes overwhelming. And they are engulfed in this guilt of what they had done. 
And Joseph, he intervenes, doesn't he? He can see that they're full of grief and he breaks the silence and he does something so unexpected, so unexpected. He doesn't find them guilty. There's no tone of anger in his words. Instead, he does the least expected thing. He forgives them and comforts them. And he he speaks, doesn't he, here with a, a regal graciousness. Have a look at the end of verse 4. I am Joseph, your brother, he says, whom ye sold unto Egypt. Verse 5. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before to preserve life. And God sent me before you, verse 7, to preserve you a, a posterity in the earth or a remnant. You might have the word remnant in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And perhaps Jesus will say the very same words. I am Jesus whom you crucified 2,000 years. But it was all part of God's plan. So that we could save you through a great deliverance. Oh how wonderful those words will be. And what a moving moment. And we don't want to miss this do we? We want to be there. There will not be a dry eye anywhere. When Jesus is finally reconciled with his brethren. And they recognize who he is, the Son of God, the Messiah. It's an extraordinary moment. So what a privilege then. What a a privilege that we know these things. That we can open up the scripture and we can try and explain what's going on. It's It's an amazing privilege that we have in this time that we're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, brothers and sisters, young people, let's not keep it as a an academic thing. These things are recorded to transform us. And we've got today. Rather than thinking about one day we're going to be a cloud, why don't we try it now? Try it out. Become a cloud. And being a cloud, what is it? It's working with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's working with one another in sweet harmony. It's being filled up with the the waters of life. And it's looking out and spotting opportunities where we can pour that water into thirsty souls. So my question to you as we finish our second talk together, how are you at being a cloud? But one final thing. I said there's two things about the the cloud with the Son of Man. That The first thing is the glory of God, the presence of God. And now we're finishing off our second talk with the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned in Jerusalem. And that is the glory of God. And the world will see it. But can you remember the second bit? It is a role of regathering. And by this time when Jesus is there with the saints, he's already gathered the saints, isn't he? He's already gathered them. Who else is there to gather? Well, to answer that question, we'll look at that tomorrow in our final talk. Thank you.